Welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. The following message was previously recorded at the Garden Church in downtown Long Beach, California. It's so good. Welcome, all of you. It's so good to be back in the LB. As, uh, as Darren said, I lived here many moons ago. Many mornings I spent reading at Portfolio. I understand Portfolio has been dethroned by a new queen of coffee in Long Beach, right? Right? Rose Park, I guess, is like a thing now. It's a Rose Park, the new queen of Long Beach. Uh, I spent many evenings um, at Open Sesame. Uh, two words, everybody. Chicken to Wook, right? If you disbelieve or doubt the inbreaking of the kingdom of God, go no further than Chicken to Wook. It is evidence that God has come very near very, very near. Um, and I spent several afternoons uh, walking the streets um, with a young gun from the OC who wanted to plant a church in Long Beach. His name was Darren Ruinson, and he had flawless hair <laughs> and the deepest of V's the world has ever seen. But Darren, like Dr. King, had a dream. And um, his dream was this. His dream was you. His dream was we. Um, A family of Jesus people who wanted to conspire with God about the renewal of the world. And that's what the church really is, right? It's a community of um, imperfect people who have been caught up in the transformative power of God, who recognize that what God is doing in you is what God is doing in all the world. That's what the church is. Bearing witness to that reality. We don't have to force it. We don't have to make it. We don't have to bring it. We bear witness to it, and it springs up from our lives that we are caught up in this. That's a beautiful thing. So uh, I understand you've been in the book of Ephesians, and Darren asked me to um, just kind of piggyback off of where you've been. So um, if you wouldn't mind, I'm just going to kind of take us forward in these next few verses as you move through this study of Ephesians. It's interesting. Ephesians is, uh, if you brought your Bibles, we'll be in Ephesians 4, 25 through 32, um, or take out your phones, because I don't think they print them anymore. Um, Ephesians is this sort of case study for the church. If you know anything about the city of Ephesus, it's a port town. And so what that means is it's a collection of multiculturalism. People are coming from all over the world. It's a smattering of humanity. And this church arises there. The goddess of Artemis is sort of like the main deal in town. And all of a sudden the gospel begins to sort of like percolate and spring up and something new happens there. And so people are coming from everywhere. And last week, if you are here, it talks about this sort of inbreaking that there was something that was old that's now shifting into something new. In other words, something broke into the cosmos in the life and ministry of Jesus that was new to the history of the world. It was sort of a fulfillment of where all history was headed and gave us sort of an understanding of where our history is headed. So something has broken into human history that changes everything. That in Jesus, there is a shift in the cosmos. But here's the mystery of it all, even to this day. It's there, but it's subtle. It's not violent. It's not coercive. It's not manipulative. It draws and woos us. It whispers at us. And it calls us to believe in something deeper than just materialism. That there's something at work that the kingdom of God is wanting to break into the earth and become visible. That the invisible realm of God is longing to find a people that will say, we will help make that visible in the world through the gift of love and compassion and grace and hope and goodness and forgiveness. And so that's what is happening if you can 
receive that. In other words, what happens in the world through Jesus is there is a power available that once was not available. That there was a God who was made visible who once was invisible. And that there's this community now of quirky people called the church who are willing to believe that the world is enchanted with the divine and that light is winning. That no matter how dark our worlds become, no matter how much hate we see smeared across the headlines, hope ultimately wins. That love wins. That that's the story of God. In light of that reality, that inbreaking, that future, Paul wants to have a conversation about what our present moment is meant to look like in anticipation of its full arrival, right? In other words, we the church are meant to become glimpses. We aren't the kingdom, but we are meant to glimpse the kingdom, to preview moments of the kingdom of what God is doing and ultimately rescuing the world. That's our call collectively. And let me say this after like the Enneagram workshop yesterday, we do it better together than we do alone. That's the reality of the church. It's not an edifice. It's not an institution. It's not a building. It's a people who are designed to be together to fully reflect back to the world the image of God. And we do that imperfectly, but at moments, at these moments, you can see it and say, oh, there's, there's Jesus in, in that moment and with those people and with that conversation and with that table, you can see Jesus. I've been thinking a lot about the Eucharist. I think what happens in the Eucharist is it reminds us that God wants to be present in all the tables in all the world, right? So what we do here every week, it's, it's so prism-like, it's, it's multifaceted. But amongst many things, it reminds us that God wants to be seen around tables in every single living room in all the world. It's an amazing thing, right? As it turns out, what we find out from this passage that we're about to read is that genuine spirituality is rather very earthly. It's very earthy, right? I think a lot of times we think about spirituality as being this sort of like ethereal thing, and if we can just escape and get up into the ether, that's very Greek, very like platonic, neoplatonic. What we find about this passage is Paul is saying it's actually simpler than you think. It's actually rooted more to the earth if you will just pay attention to how you're living, just as Darren was just talking about giving. It's actually quite practical. So here's an example. Next verse. Um, it begins with this verse, therefore, right? It goes into this next verse. In other words, the therefore was like there was a shift in a cosmos. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. For we are all members of one body. In other words, there's sort of like, hey, it was this, now it's this. You, I, I'm calling you to go from a place of deception in life to a place of authenticity, which is, has everything to do with the nature of your new identity, that you are no longer in need of performing to be somebody. You are somebody. God's called you the beloved. Who, who else do you need to be, right? I mean, the invitation is not to achieve your identity, but to receive your identity from God and to live from that place. You, you no longer have to walk around impressing one another. In Christ, you're more impressive than you'll ever know. So I think here's what Paul is saying. Don't hype yourself around this place. You don't have to hype yourself. You're already somebody. And what does it look like for a community to affirm that in one another, to say, you don't have to dress a certain way. You don't have to, to impress me. I love you for who you are. Like, what does it mean to show up on a Sunday morning and not gravitate to people of certain fashion or certain sort of acumen or certain sort of standing in life and career and status, but to say that that's just as equal as anyone showing up and I am emotionally and relational available to whoever's here because you are somebody, because you are gods. 
You were made in the image of God, right? God's not like you're a God. To say you belong to God is what I want to say with that. There's an apostrophe S there. All right, let's move on. So don't hype your way through life. Be who you are and receive each other in Christ. That's so earthy. That's so earthy. That's so doable, right? Especially with the spirit of God in us. The next passage, in your anger, do not sin. Do not sin, let the sun go down while you're still angry. Don't give the devil a foothold, right? So in other words, go from bitterness to emotion. Now let me explain what I mean by that. I'm talking about the nature, bitterness to feeling. I'm talking about the nature of emotions here. Notice it doesn't say don't ever be angry. Um... It says, don't harbor bitterness. That there are moments where the nature of life brings us to this place of just, of, of a type of anger that sometimes is actually called for and righteous. But I think what he's saying here is in your anger, don't numb your emotion. If you're noticing that you are prone to emotions, my call for you isn't to be a stoic and to act as if emotions don't matter. My call is for you to rest into emotional healing to where you can feel life. But when you're angry, don't let it fester. In any given church, there's an amount of bitterness that we carry into this room, and it's thick. Right now, there's a bitterness in the human heart somewhere in life, and it's real. It's often related to something where there's a wound, something where there's something that's happened in your life. And the temptation, I think, is this. It's to numb ourselves as a coping strategy to get through life. And that's fine. It certainly saves you from the lows, but it it creates a ceiling from the highs that God wants to bring through your life, through experiencing the joy of living. And the invitation, I think, in this is to open ourselves to feel life without getting bitter about things beyond your control. We're gonna come back to this in a few minutes because there's some things I need to clarify. Verse 28, very earthy, by the way. Verse 28, anyone who who has been stealing must no longer steal, but must work, doing something useful with their own hands that they, hang on to that phrase, may have something to share with those in need. This movement from laziness to work, and it's the nature of this is renewal. It's fascinating, the, the letter to the Second Thessalonians um, is, is the, the, the belief was that, well, Christ is coming anyway, so let's just kind of wait for that and not do anything anymore. And Paul is giving this corrective that if you do that, you're gonna miss out. We don't know when Christ is going to return. So if you do that, you're gonna miss out on the meaning of work. And so he says that they, In other words, work that they may have something to share. The that they is important because if you tease out the logical conclusion of the meaning of work, it's not that we would make a name for ourselves or that we would make our mark. It's that we'd be generous, that we would have something to share with those who cannot work, something to share with the least and the last and the left outs of the world. I think Paul is painting a picture that spirituality at its best sees ourselves as deeply interconnected with those around us, rather than free agents trying to make our way in the world and make a name for ourselves, And he paints this picture of interconnectedness that wages war against rampant individualism of our day. In other words, we're part of something far bigger, that other people are not the surrounding characters to the play called my life. That's not who they are. Other people are made in the image of God and deserve to be dignified no matter where they've come from. So we give, and we give generously, and we give to this community, and we invest in this place as being a harbor of hope in the city of Long Beach. Verse 29, very earthy stuff here. Do not let unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only that which is helpful for building up others according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. We're called to move from slander to encouragement. 
And the nature of this is Paul's interested in creating a kind of culture, a kind of way in which we are, a kind of like policy that we carry with us that we reject that kind of slander and kind of gossip because we're called to build one another up. In other words, words really matter, that words create. Words are a creative act of bringing something to bear in the world. And I just want to submit this. We've actually talked about the word a lot already in here. Um, The world was created through speech. Now, how you think Genesis happened isn't very important to me. But the world was created somehow through speech. Now, let's get mystical. Is that that okay, Darren? Can we get mystical for a minute? Okay, so there's this 16th century um, philosopher named Desiderius Erasmus. And he had this theory about John 1.1. And we've been talking about it and singing about it already. So it's already sort of in the atmosphere here. And it's the idea, say it with me if you know it. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. Now, it's interesting with that dynamic because many of us know that verse so well that it's like the candle that's been burning in the room so we don't notice some things. I just want to pull some things back here. Desiderius goes back to this text and says, okay, so the triune God is somehow creating through speech. What if word could also be translated as conversation? In other words, what if the way to translate John 1 is equally as correct to say, in the beginning was the conversation, and the conversation was with God, and the conversation was God. In other words, that the Trinity is in some kind of mystical, beautiful dialogue, and the world is sort of the birth of this beautiful, creative conversation. Now, that's interesting, right? That's very fascinating to me. In other words, speech creates. It's a creative act that words are always the beginning of building something concrete. And so how we treat each other in speech matters because you're either building something up or you're actually tearing something down, particularly in a world that's overly sarcastic and chronically cynical. Earthy spirituality, moving from deception to authenticity, moving from bitterness to feeling, moving from laziness to work, moving from slander to encouragement. Now, there's a, few, um, there's a few ways in which God is at work to put the future kingdom. These are just like s- sort of accessible, right? Like these are ways in which, Paul's saying, don't make it too complicated. Like these are easy entry steps into previewing the community of God, the kingdom of God, in a world that in many ways rejects this kind of life. And so surely there is at least one area in this that God is calling you to pay closer attention to in your life, right? I know there is for me. Verse 30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit. I love this, this term, grieve. I think it can often be translated to be, don't suppress the transformative power of God in your life. Don't put ceilings on it. Don't restrict, don't limit the freedom of God in your life. Don't give God parameters and boundaries as to where far, how far God can take you. So don't grieve the Holy Spirit with whom you were sealed. That Spirit is committed to you. To whom you were sealed with for the day of, redemp- of redemption. And here he sums it all up. Get rid of all bitterness and rage and anger and brawling and slander along with every form of malice and be kind and compassionate to one another. And here it is, forgiving each other just as Christ forgave you. Now, Darren asked me to spend a couple minutes on forgiveness, and that's what I want to do um, f- as, as we move toward a conclusion here. The implication here is that conflict will happen, right? There's no need to, like, introduce the need for forgiveness if there's no need for forgiveness, right? In other words, conflict is bound to happen in real relationship. So 99% of us right now have a conflict somewhere in our life. Like, boom, like that, the snap, you're thinking of the person Holy Spirit, that moment, that person, that thing, that, that situation. And so let me just reframe conflict for just a second here. If you're in conflict, 
Um, if you're not in conflict at some point with the people in your life, you're probably not in a real relationship. You're probably networking. So let's just sort of normalize the nature of relationality, right? That conflict is part of the reality of being human. And conflict isn't a problem. Resolving conflict biblically is where we get into all sorts of mischief. And so that's where this word forgiveness is sort of introduced here. It's this word in the Greek, afiemi. And the idea of it, it's so beautiful in its imagery. It means to send off, to release. You know, the Azazel, if you know that story of the red sort of thing that you put on and you release the goat into the wilderness. It's this idea that forgiveness is actually more of an action than it is an emotion. It's this idea of sending something off, that something has happened to you and you refuse to let it cling on you, right? And so you send it off. But how do we do that in a way that's actually real and isn't just like some sort of phony trick? And I want to tell a deeply painful story from my life. We'll call her Jen. Any Jens in the room? Just raise the hands. No, I'm serious. Any Jens in the room? One. How do you spell it? Okay, we'll go G-I. No, it's two. We'll go J-I-N. Okay, too early for G-E-I-N. J. We'll we'll spell Jen J-I-N. So it's not you. Um, I was in New York City, and we had just finished our first year of ministry there, and, and things were going quite well. Um, and um. And then there was Jen. And, um, and Jen began by being overly complimentary of my wife and I. And, um, and, and it, was, it was almost like, okay, like, just slow down a little bit. Like, whatever, you know? Thank you. I'm glad you're glad we're here. We're glad you're here too. And um, I don't know where the cap went. There it is. And, and then made a request that we weren't actually able to fulfill. Um, we we had a prophetic team that, that had been launched in prayer for, for ministry time. And she requested that every week that ministry, to, that ministry team would rally around her because her dad was going through something. And I said, well, we're available up front, but I can't take all of our, our trained prophets and just give them to you because there's other people that they exist and they're here too. But we're available every single week for you. And then something snapped and clicked and shifted. And so um, the next week I left to go on my five-year anniversary um, with my wife to Tuscany. And when we're away, uh, I did something you should never do, particularly on your anniversary. Don't ever check your email. Um, And if you do check your email on vacation, it's often a sign that you're over-identified with what you do. And that's where I was. I was very overly identified with my job. And she falsely accused me of impropriety. She wouldn't exactly tell me what it was. And to this day, I, I don't know. She told the elders and a few other people. And so she accused me of an impropriety that wasn't even remotely true. And I'm type three on the Enneagram, if you're aware of that personality theory. And what that basically means is managing and controlling others' perceptions of me is like a core value when you're not healthy, right? Um, it has everything to do with that first value of being authentic rather than deceiving people, trying to, trying to hype up something to become something for you that you might think something about me. And so threes end up believing that what others think is reality, So I'll do whatever I can to get you to think certain things about me. And I was worried that others would believe her false testimony because then what might that mean? Because if that's my reality, then that has a lot to do with my identity. And and I just got bound up in this whole thing. And the elders get involved and there's mediation. And she's present at worship gatherings. So it's super awkward. And I'm teaching and I'm looking at Jen, J-I-N, and I'm thinking, this is so weird. 
why are you here if you're accusing me of this? You wouldn't want to be near me. And weeks passed, which felt like years. And every day, probably every single hour, I prayed that she would be convicted and that she would apologize and tell the elders the truth, that she made it all up. And I was exhausted, exhausted. Matthew 18 is this interesting passage where the disciples ask about forgiveness. And they're like, how many times? Like seven times? And what does Jesus say? Like, Like 70 times, seven times, right? This sort of play on words, this 490 principle. I don't think... Jesus has in mind, um, I'm not saying this isn't possible, but I don't know that Jesus has in mind that one person is going to offend you 490 different times and that every time there's a unique offense, you should forgive them. I wonder, I, I wonder if he's getting at the lingering, festering nature of unforgiveness that leads to bitterness. In other words, I think one single offense put in the raw spot of your ego can lead to all sorts of issues, all sorts of mischief to take you down, to steal your joy, to steal your peace, to steal your emotions, and it festers in you, and the enemy begins to work deeply in your life. And Paul begins to write to the Ephesians saying, it's gonna rob you from the kingdom of God coming through your life. And listen, some of you feel that right now, and it's absolutely robbing you of the joy of living. And I think Jesus is saying, AJ, every time Every time you think about what Jen did to you, send it off, release it, afiemi. And it may begin that week one, 490 times, you're gonna have to say, I forgive her. And then the next week, what happens is it's closer to 450. And then the next week, it's closer to about 400. And then the next week, it's closer to about 300 times. And then the next week, it's closer to about 100. And then 20, and then five, and then one. I had this Eucharistic moment at the end of this sort of pattern in my life where I'm sitting, we have the Eucharist, um, at the end of our gathering in New York, and we used to meet in a cathedral. And so I would go and I would sit on the side and look up and there would be this stained glass. And I, I kid you not, I, I get done and I felt this word came into my mind. I don't know why, I don't play baseball. It was, the, it was the, the term catcher's mitt. I felt like emotionally, I was like a worn out catcher's mitt. I felt like if you could symbolize my face and synchronize it with what my heart felt, it felt like a worn out catcher's mitt. And I felt imprisoned by her false accusation. And in a moment, I heard the spirit say to me, your freedom is not dependent on her apology. What if that's true for you? And I looked up and I saw an image of Jesus in this stained glass. And he looked like a beat up catcher's mitt. who said to me, release it, send it to me, I'll take it for you. I absorbed the weight of the world. This is why I came, you are free. And today I can speak of Jen and bless her life. And this is where praying the Psalms comes into play. 
the imprecatory psalms. Do you know what these are? These, these psalms that invoke judgment on other people and calamity on someone who has offend you, offended you, right? They're so awkward to read. Let me just read one to you. This is from, um, awkwardness is like the currency of my life. This is from Psalm 58. Now imagine praying this over someone. Oh God, break Gina's teeth in her mouth. Tear out the fangs of the young lion, Jen, oh Lord. Let her vanish like water that runs away when she aims her arrows. Let them be blunted. Let her be like the snail that dissolves into slime. Come on! Like the stillborn child who never sees the sun. That's deep. That's mad. That's angry. Right? Come on. It's hard to pray these psalms and to be like, I don't, I, I would, you would never wish that on people, right? You would never wish it, she'd like dissolve into slime. That's just weird. And when you read that and you insert the name of whoever has to come to mind, you're, you're not agreeing on that. You're simply expressing what you feel to God. That the Psalms give us permission to feel and I'm grateful for a biblical text that is at least emotionally honest. It's one of the reasons I take the text seriously because it doesn't try to hide and protect itself. It's so honest. It doesn't gloss over things. And here's my problem. And here's where it connects with us. Here's where it connects with you. Here's sort of the, the climax moment. So get ready for it. I don't usually take my bitterness to God. I prefer to take my bitterness to the people around me. And I want to recruit allies to my pain. And I want to rally enemies against her. Can you believe what Jen said about me? What a deceiver, what a liar. I can't even believe she has the audacity to show her face in worship. Listen, if you take your offense to other people, your wound will grow. If you take your offense to God, your wound will heal. It may not be immediate, but it will dwindle from 490 to 400 to 300 to 150 to 50 to five. And then you will be able to say, look what God has healed in my life. I love her. She's your daughter, God. And I bless your child. Thank you for listening to the Garden Church Podcast. For more information about the Garden Church, visit thegardenlb.org.